This morning's scripture reading will be from Isaiah 26, 3. You will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you, because he trusts in you. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Um, over the past few weeks, Fifi and I have been praying with Faustina, a friend of mine, in Ghana. Faustina got accepted into Temple University for a master's program in law. However, due to travel restrictions imposed by the pandemic, she's had to do her coursework remotely since August last year. And this has been the situation for most international students. Since early this year, Faustina's program now requires her to complete the remainder of her coursework in person. However, the visa application process has been really tough for her. So Faustina reached out to me because she knew I was in a similar situation a few years ago and I have been passing on helpful information and also praying with her. The visa situation aside, Faustina's landlord wants her to move out of her apartment because he needs his apartment back for his son who is returning home from abroad. Also, Faustina recently got involved in the car accident. Thankfully, she's alive and well, but not without light injuries. Obviously, Faustina is going through a lot. In Ghana, we use the expression from frying pan to fire to describe such a situation. And this expression simply paints a picture of going through successive trials, which only increase in intensity. And maybe some of you here have experienced that, or I experienced in that. There are times I call Faustina, and like any fully functioning human, she cries on the phone. She expresses her frustration with her situation and her frustration with God. Of course, I do well to minister to her, and sometimes I draw from my own experiences to encourage her, and I encourage her with scripture, and I pray with her. And there are times when we have a light breaking through from her. For example, the embassy might send her a note saying, we've approved the emergency visa interview, but then they don't provide a date for her to come in. So it's a cycle of breakthrough and disappointment, and I can share several developments that follows that cycle. Yet, regardless of the frustration, Faustina still holds on to her faith in God. Just a few days ago, I called her and I asked how she was doing. Her response was, Nathaniel, I strangely feel at peace. And this is her own words. I strangely feel at peace. I have ceased from striving. I feel God knows what he's doing, and I'm at peace to follow along, regardless of the path he leads me on. Naysayers claim that by encouraging people to fix their mind on the eternal, Rather than the here and now, faith in God fosters a false consciousness that only serves the function of a temporal fix. Furthermore, this temporal fix operating through a supposedly distorted view of reality can be likened to the function of opium in an injured person. It reduces people's immediate suffering and provides them with pleasant illusions which give them the strength to carry on. But is this claim a true reflection of what faith in God is all about? In a very therapeutic culture, it is easy to fall into the temptation of simply categorizing faith as one of the coping mechanisms or therapies or quick fixes that can help us cope with the effects of a broken world. And it's also easy for us to cast this idea on how we approach God and relate to God, namely superficially and transactionally. In direct tension with the notion that faith in God is superficial, that faith only serves a temporal fix, I'd like to submit to you that faith in God is deep. And I'll soon be unpacking what this death implies. Our text taken from Isaiah 26 verse 3 says that you will keep in perfect peace he whose mind is stayed on you, for he trusts in you. 
From this text, there are three interesting insights we can glean with regards to death in relation to the exercise of faith. And I'll be dividing the text into three sections and then develop the sermon by using a backward approach to extract spiritual light from each of the sections of the text. So kindly lend me your ears and follow along with me. Foundationally, we need to understand what faith is. We need to know how faith comes about and the fundamental elements that constitute faith. We also need to know how faith is exercised and the outcomes of faith. By definition, I'd like to assert that for a Christian, genuine faith is a personal attachment to Christ, and it involves depending on the finished work of Christ's sacrifice. It also involves the whole revealed word of God and the realities encountered in God's word. Through our interaction with God's word, we are exposed first and foremost to the nature of God. We encounter who God is. We learn about his attributes, his names, his character, and his ways. We are drawn into God's mind. This encounter ultimately forges a deep relationship with a being who, although is unseen, for God's spirit, is yet very real. Furthermore, this personal attachment to Christ, who is the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and this knowledge of God's person, God's character, God's attributes, and his ways builds trust, and it leads into intimacy with God. The word trust is translated from the Hebrew batak, and it also means confidence. And this is the key word we see in the concluding portion of the text, because he trusts in you. Trust or confidence is a product of a deep relationship. Anyone here who has ever been in a relationship will testify that trust is not something you establish superficially. Trust requires work. Trust requires intentionality and vulnerability and participation and death. This insight we glean from the concluding portion of Isaiah 26 verse 3 with regards to trust leads to my first assertion that faith is relationally deep. Faith's primary goal is to establish this trust by drawing us into a deep relationship with God. And like every relationship, it's a two-way traffic. Not only do we develop trust in God, God also develops trust in us. And we observe this in the story of Abraham. In Genesis chapter 22, God tests Abraham. In verse 2 of this chapter, God asks Abraham to sacrifice his only son whom he loves. In verse 3, Abraham obeys the instruction and proceeds to sacrifice his son. And in verse 10, we witness Abraham reaching for a knife ready to slay his son. Then in verses 11 and 12, the angel of the Lord literally shouts, Abraham, Abraham, do not harm the boy. For now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. James sheds some light on Abraham's faith. In James chapter 2, verse 23, the Bible says that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. So not only did Abraham have trust in God, God also had trust in Abraham. He called Abraham his friend. As a matter of fact, God's level of trust in Abraham was elevated to the point where God found it necessary to disclose his intimate intentions to Abraham. And we witness this in Genesis chapter 18. God appears to Abraham in human form, and theologians describe that a theophany. Anyway, Abraham shows hospitality to these three men that appear to him by the great trees of Mamre. He washes their feet, and he refreshes them with a meal prepared by his wife, Sarah. And then in verse 10, the Bible says that one of them, now, I'm, I don't know whether it was the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit, but one of these three men said to Abraham, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And we'll soon come back to this promise in a moment. 
But moving forward, when you get to the verses 16 to 17, we, we see an interesting thing here that emphasizes the point I want to make. Um, the one of the men, as they were about to leave, Abraham was literally walking alongside with them on, to see them off. And then one of the men says, shall we hide this from Abraham? God says, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? This rhetorical question the Lord posed clearly shows how Abraham, or how God, sorry, drew Abraham into his counsel. And the next thing we witness is that Abraham leverages this trust and begins to negotiate on behalf of the city of Sodom. I spent some time in Genesis 18 because I wanted to clearly paint a picture that trust is a product of a deep relationship. And throughout scripture, we observe clearly that the object of faith is to reconcile us to God, is to draw us into this deep intimacy with God. Consequently, that vertical reconciliation also leads to a horizontal reconciliation in that we are also reconciled with one another. The mere fact that Jesus calls us brethren in, in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11, simply implies that we are all of the same family and that whoever identifies with Christ is inextricably bound in relationship to any other person who identifies with Christ. So kindly take note of this first assertion that faith is relationally deep. Moving on to the middle portion of our main text, whose mind is stayed on you, we quickly observe that there is an intellectual component to faith. This observation deserves much attention because we need to diffuse the nebulous notion that faith in God is for the weak-minded, or that faith thrives on illusion, or that faith fosters a false consciousness. And to this end, I'd like to make a second assertion that faith is intellectually deep. Earlier on, I asserted that genuine faith is a personal attachment to Christ and that it involves depending on the finished work of Christ's sacrifice. I also mentioned that faith involves the whole revealed word of God and the realities we encounter in God's word. And this simply implies that knowledge is essential to all faith. Hebrews 10, 17 says that, consequently, faith comes from what is heard and what is heard comes through the message of Christ. So there's always a message or a knowledge that informs the action of faith. The reason Abraham embarked on the journey to an unknown location was simply because God said to him, get thee out of thy father's house and go to a land I'll show you. So Abraham was simply acting on the word. He was acting on the message he received from God. In another instance, God tells Abraham, I'll make you a father of many nations. I'll give you a child of your own loins. Recall the promise we, we, we saw in Genesis 18, verse 10. Again, Abraham holds on to these messages. He holds on to these promises, and he engages his mind by aligning his intellectual framework to embrace the realities presented by God's promises. Mind you, in verse 11 of, of Genesis 18, after God gave the promise, the Bible comments that both Abraham and his, Sarah, and his wife Sarah were very old, and Sarah was past the age of childbirth. And this begs us to ask the question, if Abraham and Sarah was past the age of childbirth, why does God give them that promise that Abraham is going to have a child? Does it mean that faith is at odds with reality, or does it mean that faith fosters a false consciousness? Well, Paul gives us some light here. Paul's commentary in the book of Romans helps us to understand that faith is not divorced from reality. In Romans 4.19, Paul says that without losing faith, Abraham, who was nearly 100 years old, took into account his own body, which was as good as dead, and Sarah's womb, which was dead. 
So clearly, Abraham wasn't experiencing a, a distorted view of reality. Abraham was fully aware of his physical limitation that he was not capable of giving birth. So then why does he still hold on to this promise? It's in, this, it's in answering this question that we observe the nature of the knowledge that informs faith. While this knowledge considers the reality pertaining to our senses and the realities pertaining to the order of the physical universe and the structures of human societies and cultures, it is a knowledge infused with hope. Hope is an essential component of faith that allows the mind to embrace realities that extend the boundaries of our senses and the order of this universe. Hope is inspired by God's promises. Hope welcomes God into the situation, and hope also embraces the supernatural. Hope acknowledges that the universe is more than just a material time-space continuum, that this world is more than just the processes of life we are familiar with. In Romans 8 verse 14, the Bible says that Abraham had faith in the hope that he would become the father of many nations. In keeping with the promise God spoke to him, that's how many descendants you have. But is this hope delusional? Is this just a temporal fix to provide Abraham the needed strength to move on? The answer is no. Abraham did bear a child in his old age, and his name was Isaac. And he was rightly named Isaac, which means laughter, because it sounded ridiculous when God promised two oldies that they were going to bear a child. <laughs> Moving on, another key insight worth mentioning that emphasizes the action of the mind in relation to Abraham's act of faith when God instructed him to sacrifice Isaac can be found in Paul's commentary in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 19. Paul says that Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. And in a sense, he did receive Isaac back from death. At the center of Abraham's intellectual engagement is this deep relational component of faith, in that Abraham, through his intimate relationship with God, was able to discern that God had the ability to raise the dead. And it shouldn't come to you as a surprise that certain information is only privy to parties involved in an intimate relationship. I recently got married. And it's not taken long for me to realize that my wife now knows stuff about me that I didn't even know about myself. <laughs> Abraham certainly allowed his mind or intellectual framework to be fully engaged in his exercise of faith. He did not deny the realities of his physical limitations, but he certainly allowed his mind to be stretched to embrace the realities of God's nature and God's promises to him. This knowledge Abraham gleaned by reason of that intimate relationship he had with God informed his decision to carry on with God's instruction. And without actually committing the physical act of slaying his son, Paul says that figuratively Isaac died and came back alive. In Abraham's obedience, we immediately see a shadow of what God was going to accomplish in the future with his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. And this observation helps us to see that the outcome of faith it's not just about ourselves. There's that transcendent and eternal footprint that our little exploits of faith stamps into God's story. Apart from the story of Abraham, there are several pointers in Scripture that evidences the truth that faith is deeply intellectual. And for example, you look at Romans chapter 12, verse 2, the Bible talks about being transformed by the renewal of the mind to the end that we'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So yes, faith craves the participation of our mind, and faith is intellectually deep. 
Finally, I'd like us to turn our attention to the beginning phrase of our main text in Isaiah chapter 26, verse 3. You will keep him in perfect peace. Mind you, this opening section of the text is a consequence of the following two sections which we just talked about. He whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. It is interesting to note that both the words perfect and peace are translated from the same Hebrew word shalom. And, and so we get a sense of a double peace, or if you would permit, a deep peace. And this leads to my third assertion that faith leads to deep peace. Romans chapter 5 verse 1 says that being justified through faith, we have peace with God. And that phrase, through faith, suggests to us that faith is more or less a conduit or a channel that ushers us into God's peace. And as such, we cannot circumvent this channel. We cannot cut corners to realize God's peace. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, the Bible emphatically says that without faith, it is impossible to please God because whoever approaches him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who sincerely seek him. Clearly, we observe from Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, that the notion of death is implied by the key word sincerely, or other translations used earnestly, seeking after God. And we have already seen that this implies a deep relationship and also a deep intellectual engagement with God. But what is the nature of this deep peace? From the testimonies I have shared from Scripture, mainly Abraham's story, and from the testimony of my friend Faustina, we know that this peace does not mean an absence of chaos or suffering or frustration. Abraham had his episodes of frustration with waiting on God's promise. At one point, he asked God if Eliezer of Damascus was going to inherit all his wealth. And at another point, Abraham's wife was literally putting pressure on him to have a child with her, with her maid, Hagar. So Abraham had his moments of frustration and also failures. But yet, Romans 4, 20 to 21 says that he did not waver with unbelief concerning the promise of God. He remained strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully persuaded that God was able to do what he had promised. This is a very important observation regarding the nature of the peace God bestows on us. It is a kind of peace that is independent of the circumstances or the situations we find ourselves in. It is a kind of peace that transcends understanding because it is divine. Certainly, this peace is not a distortion of reality. My friend Faustina is recovering from the wounds afflicted on her by her recent car accident. She tells me that she still has bruises on her chest and on her ribs, and that she feels dizzy and she has not left her home for about a week now. She still has to deal with the pressure from her landlord to find a new apartment, and she certainly has to deal with the frustration with her visa application process. But in her own words, she says that she strangely feels at peace. Why is this so? Firstly, Faustina knows who God is by reason of her deep relationship with God. She knows God through his names. The other day we were praying on the phone, and she kept saying, Father, you are Alpha and you are Omega. You started with me and you end with me. I trust your process and I trust your will. Faustina also knows God through his nature and character and his ways. And, and Jeremiah rightly says that let him who boasts, boast in this that he knows me, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth, for I delight in these things, says the Lord. So Faustina's intellectual framework is sustained in her knowledge of God. Yes, she's fully conscious of what's going on around her, and she expresses her frustration, even sometimes her frustration with God. 
but she chooses to yield to God's dealing with her by allowing the categories of intellectual framework to align with what God sees. This peace that flows to her, regardless of her circumstance, is not superficial. It is a deep peace that she chooses to use the word strange to describe it. She also says that she has ceased from striving. And this statement is particularly fascinating to me because scripture reveals to us that faith is not about striving hard to get something from God. Faith is an ascent. Faith is an amen to the will of God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, the Bible says that for no matter how many promises God has made, they are, they are yes in Christ. And through Christ, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. So faith, therefore, is, a, is simply an affirmation. It's an affirmation of what God has said and, and also aligning with the accomplished realities we find in Christ. That's all that faith does. Faith does no hard work. We observe this notion in, in, in other passages of Scripture. For example, we read um, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 to 9. For it is by grace you are saved through faith, and that this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And, and there are other passages of Scripture that reflect the same notion that faith does nothing. Faith is a gift that ushers us into what God's grace provides. Recall from the initial definition I gave about faith, that faith is a personal attachment to Christ and dependence on Christ's finished work. And by reason of what Christ has accomplished for us, we are invited in to enter into God's Sabbath rest. And faith is that channel that leads us into God's rest. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 10, the Bible says that whoever enters into God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. It is this cessation from striving by entering into God's Sabbath rest that culminates the object of faith. So first, faith draws us into a deep relationship with God. Secondly, faith aligns us with God's will through the renewing of our mind, and this involves a deep intellectual engagement. And thirdly, faith ushers us into God's Sabbath rest, a place of spiritual fulfillment and deep peace. So what does all of this mean? Very briefly, contrary to the notion that faith is superficial, today's message should help us to embrace the idea that faith is deep. Furthermore, we should also immediately realize that there's no shortcut to God's peace or God's Sabbath rest that circumvents faith. That deep relationship, being made right with God, and that deep intellectual engagement, the renewal of our mind, is key to embracing God's peace. This also implies that Faith is not transactional. Faith is not a grab-and-go, quick-fix formula that we apply to the wounds afflicted to us by, by, this, by the brokenness in our world. And finally, the exercise of faith doesn't encourage selfish ends. Often, we discover that the exploit of faith is simply not about ourselves. Rather, it is the yielding of ourselves to be instruments through which God executes His purposes and displays His splendor. And this observation was very evident in the story of Abraham in that his obedience to sacrifice Isaac foreshadowed what God was going to accomplish with his son, Jesus Christ. So without any controversy, we, we, we witness the death of faith, that faith is, is not anything shallow, it's not anything superficial. Faith draws us deep into God. Faith will, will provoke us to go deep with God. Today, God invites us to lean into Jesus and to enter into Sabbath rest by fully trusting in him. 
And as I conclude, I'd like to invite us to reflect on our own journey of faith. In 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5, the Bible says, Examine yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Surely know that Jesus Christ is among you. If not, you have failed the test of genuine faith. So please close your eyes with me for the next few minutes. And I'd like to challenge us to visualize where God is calling us to step out in faith. I'd like to challenge us to imagine ourselves accepting God's invitation and also imagine our next step after today's sermon. Imagine how powerful a witness we can become by leaning into deep faith. Imagine how our conduct of life, influenced and sustained by deep faith, could be a testimony that reflects what genuine faith in God is really about to the culture we are planted in. Gracious Father, we are grateful for your word today. Um, we're thankful that your word assures us that you will keep in perfect peace he whose mind is stayed on you, for he trusts in you. Lord, we trust in you this day, and we desire that our faith will be rooted and grounded in the depths of your love. We also trust that by your spirit, our minds will be renewed to align with your will and with your purposes. And to this end, we pray that you usher us into your Sabbath rest. You help us to cease from striving and to just lean on you, Lord, and trust in you. In your holy name we pray, amen.